Campfire Classics is a classic literature podcast. However, your hosts will occasionally use not-so-classy language and immature humor to describe very mature situations. As such, listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Ken Sandberg. And I'm Heather Michelle Lawler. Welcome to Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. Pretzel stuck in my teeth. Oh, good. Mm-hmm. Would you like to drink some scotch and get I it out? I think I would. There that we sounds go. like Cheers. an excellent way to get pretzel out of your mouth. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, welcome to Scotch Weather, y'all. It is. That's what we were, I was just like, I found this bottle on our little bar and I was like, what is this? Oh, yeah, this is the scotch we bought from a local Philadelphia distillery. Mm-hmm. Uh, last Christmas at the Christmas Mart. And I'm like, we should open this because it wasn't even open. And I was like, and it feels like a nice day in Scotland. Now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And thank God you were able to connect where it came from because I think there are a few things scarier in this world than where did this bottle of scotch come from? <laughs> Want to open it? <laughs> See, to be fair, I remember where they all come from. I will say, like, shockingly enough. No, uh, and that's like, that's that's a good, good thing. Yeah. Because like. Because we have some pretty uh, unique bottles on that bar, yeah. which uh, is kind of the issue. I never want to drink them. Does anyone like have like nice things that they don't want ever want to? It's kind of like my whiskey um collection is kind of like a uh, wedding china to the generation before us <laughs> like like people would get china for Why their wedding the and never use it this? yeah and i love but i love again they all like you talk to people they're like i love our wedding china but they never bring it out cuz they like they're like afraid it's going to break whatever and i like never drink the good whiskey from like the really cool distilleries we go to on the bourbon trail and mm-hmm. randomly discover cuz i'm like cuz if i drink it it's gone and then it's gone yeah so, so that's a habit i'm trying to uh i'm trying to enjoy so we've a got, glass of that got, occasionally got all of these fancy like, like whiskeys and bourbons and what do we keep drinking and rums and the, yeah the bottle of maker's mark that we picked up like at the corner store yeah and like i i don't (laughs) nothing wrong with that yeah but but you can get that literally anywhere i should enjoy the like the fruits of our our travel labors and you know um and you keep the bottle and you keep the bottle you can keep the bottle turn it into something fun but make it an art project there you go so so we'll 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 do that, but uh, I wonder if uh, anyone at home has a thing of theirs that they treat like that. That they're like, I love it, but I never use it or never imbibe in it or never, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be curious to so hear about let that. Let us know. What do you, what are you what are you hanging on to that you shouldn't be because you're afraid to use it? Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. like I yeah. Because I've tried to encourage my parents. They've already got rid of their wedding china that doesn't exist anymore. I don't think. If you if you do have it, hey, you should use it. Do you still have it? Yeah. <laughs> um, but like they have these like nice champagne glasses that are like really expensive and nice. And like 
I'm like, we're all adults. Bring them out. Yeah. <laughs> like, let's drink champagne when we're going to do a toast when we're all with my family. It's like, bring out the good champagne glasses. Yeah. <laughs> Have the first drink with the good champagne glasses. If you continue to Not drink. Not the fifth or sixth. Yeah. That's when danger. Yeah. You bring out the glasses for the first toast. If you continue to drink champagne and or whatever the rest of the night, then you bring out the random glasses. Eventually, you switch to plastic. Yeah. And you don't bring them out at, like, giant parties. But, yeah. yeah. So, stuff like that. I'm drunk. Time for the champagne to go into a solo cup. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, Which is why we have no matching wine glasses. Because yeah. we have literally <laughs> just random glasses left. Yeah. Although, for the most part, that's not a, oh, no, I got drunk and broke it situation. It's a, I was washing the dishes too hard. <laughs> I was washing the dishes too hard or they broke while we were moving yeah. or, you know. But I like it like that. I yeah. like some eclectic eclectic dishes. Although another thing, um, so yes, you can drink the drink the whiskey, drink the bourbon, hold on to the bottle. It's the nice memento. Um, however, when I was living in New York, I had a roommate who I will not call out lest I embarrass them, <laughs> who decided it would be really fun to decorate the apartment with all of the wine and alcohol bottles. That, that you had consumed? That had been emptied and in the apartment. And like alcoholics? Oh, God, yeah. it was embarrassing. <laughs> it was not a good look. Yeah, but you were in your early 20s in college. Like, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Uh, we kind of did that in Chicago at my apartment because uh, we all loved wine, everyone that lived in that apartment. So we went through quite a bit of it. Um, and we would we had a cabinet, like a long cabinet in the kitchen, and we started like putting like little fairy lights in all the bottles and using that to decorate. Mm-hmm. And that thing was fucking packed, like yeah. packed full. <laughs> so In my head, though, you at least had... Um, Interesting bottles and mm-hmm. and like maybe a little bit of variety. Oh yeah, you and, guys has had PBR. And <laughs> no, uh, depending on who you ask, much worse. Carlo Rossi jugs. Oh yeah, much worse. Of the Carlo Rossi Vin Rose, yeah. they're rosé. Oh no no no, much worse. So many jugs of Carlo Rossi rosé. That shit. is just a hangover in a jug. We drank a lot of that at uh, Shawnee Summer Theater or the like summer stock I worked at. One of our costumers, who I will not call out because, you know, again, lest they be embarrassed, would uh, often drink an entire bottle of that sangria by themselves. Yeah. And not remember the next day what they did. Sure, because it comes in a gallon jug. Because it's a gallon jug and it's sugar water. Yeah. It's fermented sugar water. The next morning is so hateful. I I would rarely partake in the Carlo Rossi um, happenings. Because by the time I got to Summerstock, I was like 30. Almost. I was like 28, Right, you had developed taste buds. I had some, some like, standards. I mean, I'll do fucking two-buck chuck all day. But two-buck chuck, that's good stuff compared to Carlo Rossi. Anyway, that's that's where my brain is right now. I worked all day as Betsy, and it was very busy um, because everyone had the day off. So it was very busy, had some great people. But my, my brain's a little wackadoodle, but my mouth's super warmed up. 
which is good. Great. That's good because this podcast, ladies and gentlemen, for those of you who may be newcomers, and if we're doing our job right, every episode is somebody's first episode. This podcast is not a wine and booze review podcast, nor is it a decorating tips podcast. It is, in fact, a literary comedy podcast where each week we present to you a story, cold red, pulled out of public domain and... um attempted to uh, present to you in its entirety. We always attempted. make it. We usually make it to the end. We always make it to the end. <laughs> I, I, Sometimes it's rougher than others. Yeah. Yes. It's, there are some rough waters out there, but we present it to you sight unseen, uh, and you get to see a bunch of the, the hiccups and moles and ugly bits of cold reading, tricky old dialogue, and you get to hear us make penis jokes out of things that were probably never supposed to be penis jokes. Yeah. Although some of them might have been. Some of them might have been. Yeah. yeah. Like much like Shakespeare, it's like, was that meant to be dirty? Uh, well, Absolutely. From Shakespeare, yes. Well, that's why I'm like, sometimes we're like, maybe they weren't meant to be, but I'm like, you know what? They might have been. Yeah. <laughs> In Shakespeare, a sword is never just a sword. Oh, no. No, no. No. A sword is always a swing. <laughs> <laughs> Holy crap. Is it 1993 already? It, well, Showing. I mean, you saw my outfit this morning. I did. I accidentally dressed like a, a, a 1990s boy band member this morning going to work, and I'm still wearing the cargo pants mm-hmm. that I did. I did a and and the the like ribs, Henley Henley undershirt yeah. and yeah. Um, and I had my docks on, yeah. So I and I had this big giant flannel and yeah. my little like ski cap. Yeah. I'm like, oh my gosh, I look like I'm in NSYNC. You you look like the white hip hop boy from a boy band. Yeah, I look like AJ. <laughs> <laughs> But you know, I that I am a product of my time. I was uh, eleven years old when those bands started coming out in nineteen ninety three. Those were impressionable so. years. Oh yeah. <sighs> Not to mention New Kids on the Block prior to that. So. Right. Yeah. Um. But yeah. So what am I doing this? Yeah. Week? So this week I have selected a story for Heather to read. But before we jump into it, I'm going to. Um, well, basically, it's literary foreplay is really what it is. It's oh. it's putting us in the mood and getting us warmed up and ready for the story, right? All right. I'm, um, I, I love that fun facts just became literary foreplay. Yeah. I think we're going to keep that. That's the new term. That's amazing. <laughs> Though I love the term fun facts just because I get so excited when I say it. I'm like, fun, fun facts. facts. Literary foreplay, literary foreplay. is nice. That <laughs> seems on brand for us. Welcome to this week's Literary Foreplay. Uh, So Heather actually already has a little bit of a clue who this week's author might be. Um, I do? I think so. So a couple of weeks ago, you brought us a story from Isaac Asimov, one of science fiction literature's big three. Yes. This week, we're talking about the second member of the big three, Arthur C. Clarke. All right. A lifelong proponent of space travel, Clark earned himself the nickname The Prophet of the Space Age for his science and science fiction writing. All right. His list of credits is, we'll just say super impressive, but his most easily recognizable work today is 2001 A Space Odyssey, which he co-wrote with Stanley Kubrick. 
Okay, because we were talking about this the other night. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Why were we looking that up again? Uh, We're going to get to that. You'll remember. Okay. Uh, So, 2001 A Space Odyssey, which he co-wrote with with Kubrick, was based on Clark's short story, The Sentinel. Now, in a weird adaptive Ouroboros situation, Clark also wrote the novelization of the movie 2001 A Space Odyssey. Okay. And then he wrote a novel that was a sequel to 2001 A Space Odyssey called 2010 Odyssey 2, which was then adapted into a movie. So he wrote the short story and then the movie and then the novelization of the movie and then the sequel to the novelization and And then then the the adaption of his... Yeah. Fun. Love that. You know, like just you got to get all genres. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So he is also well known today for his three laws, the third of which is often quoted probably more than once on this podcast. And this is what brought him up a few days ago. Yes, yes. The three laws are one, when a distinguished but elderly scientist states that something is possible, he is almost certainly right. When he states that something is impossible, he is almost certainly wrong. Mm hmm. Okay. Two. The only way of discovering the limits of the possible is to venture a little way past them into the impossible. Mm, That one's nice. I like that. Three. And this is the one. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Yep. Yep. Uh, In terms of a personal life, he did have one. He was born in England in 1917. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He was a radar specialist with the RAF during World War II. uh, And he pushed for advancement in scientific research and exploration his whole life. Uh, He talked about the real-life benefits of space travel well before human beings were doing it. Um, Diving and undersea exploration, geosynchronous satellites for telecommunications, and even described a global computing system shockingly similar to today's World Wide Web back in 1964. Kind of like uh, asthma. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, He added online banking and shopping to his predictions in the 70s. Oh, shit. (laughs) Well, talk about draining my bank account is uh, online shopping. (laughs) Uh, He was married very briefly in the 1950s. They were together for about six months before they separated. Holy shit. That's some Hollywood uh, ending relationships there. It was another decade before the divorce was settled. Okay. Um, when asked by journalists if he was gay, he responded, no, merely mildly cheerful. I uh, am obsessed with him. When asked by Playboy if he had ever had a bisexual experience, he said, of course, who hasn't? <laughs> He's like, yeah, I went to college, you <laughs> dumbass. <laughs> In his obituary, Clark's friend Carrie O'Quinn wrote, yes, Arthur was gay. As Isaac Asimov once told me, I think he simply found he preferred men. Arthur didn't publicize his sexuality. That wasn't the focus of his life. But if asked, he was open and honest. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I don't love that he had to keep it a secret because at that time it was still very much like scandalous, especially in England. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah. But good for him. Uh, Also scandalous in Sri Lanka, where he moved in 1956 and lived until he died in 2008. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. 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 Uh, So uh, Arthur C. Clarke was always intrigued by but skeptical of the paranormal world. But he firmly believed that intelligent life existed on other planets. 
I mean, yeah. <laughs> Again, uh, I mean, that goes with his quotes. Like, if you haven't discovered it, just keep going. Because, yeah. like, there's no way in the, ex- like, extensive, like, expanse of matter and space in the galaxies that there is not some other intelligent life somewhere. That's just ignorant to think. Yeah. Um, <laughs> during my research, I, I ended up not writing this down, so I'm not going to be able to quote him exactly. Yeah. Um, but because of what you just said, it, it brought to the top of my mind. At one point, he was basically challenged on his belief in um, extraterrestrial intelligent life. Okay. And he was said, if there is intelligent life out there, why haven't we found it yet? And his response was the fact that we haven't found it yet makes me believe it's there. Because if there it's is life out there that is more intelligent than us, it probably knows to avoid us. It probably knows to avoid us and knows how not to be found. Yeah. Like. And if they don't know about, if they don't understand us, then they don't want to interact. Yeah. So not only did he win just about every literary award a science fiction writer could win in his time, he has several of those awards named after him. Oh, cool. Uh, A few other things named after Arthur C. Clarke. An asteroid. 4923 Clark is named after him. Sweet. A dinosaur. Cool. Serendipoceratops Arthur Clarkey. <laughs> Serendipoceratops. Serendipoceratops Arthur Clarkey. It sounds like a uh, like weird promo for the movie Serendipity, but dinosaur styled. <laughs> I imagine it's one that was found serendipitously. Like, yeah, yeah. Like he stumbled and, upon it, and, and then it, they named it after yeah. him. That's adorable. Uh. The Arthur C. Clarke Expressway and the Arthur C. Clarke Institution for Modern Technologies, both in Sri Lanka, where he moved in the 50s and lived until he died. Clark Mons, a mountain on Pluto's moon Sharon, though I've heard that moon pronounced Karen and Chiron. Okay. Um, And I intentionally didn't look up how Neil deGrasse Tyson pronounces it because I'm still bitter about the Pluto thing. But that mountain (laughs) on that moon was named after him. I never quite know, depending on what day of the week it is, if we if Pluto is a planet anymore or not. So you're always in my heart, Pluto. Pluto will always be a planet in my heart, in my heart, because that's what I was taught. I was taught nine motherfuckers. Clark died in Sri Lanka in 2008, just a couple of hours after a major gamma ray burst, GRB080319B, also known as the Clark event, hit Earth. It was a fitting tribute to his life. Wait, was it na- it was named the Clark event after he died, right? Or yes, before? and after oh, was- and after him, yeah. Oh, I was like, holy shit, that would be weird. Yeah, <laughs> he's like, this thing's gonna happen, and then it just kills him. And then it kills him. Yeah, talk no. about serendipitous. Um, at the time, it was the uh the um whatever the the like photon event, the light oh, okay. event that reached Earth. The, the the farthest distance that a visible event had traveled through space. Okay. Cool. Uh, Yeah. So anyway, that's a little bit about Arthur C. Clarke. Today you'll be reading his short story published in Fantastic Universe in 1956, the same year he moved to Sri Lanka. The Pacifist. Oh. Mm. Let's start this fire. Let's start it because it's fire scotch weather. The Pacifist by Arthur C. Clarke. What dreadful things can happen when a Dr. Miliquitos gets that gleam in his eye? Um, 
I love that pronunciation. <laughs> it's not what it is. It's not what it is. Milk I'm, with toast? I'm actually pretty sure that is Dr. Milk Toast. It's just milk toast. I try. I made it sound fancy. It's yeah, milk it's, toast. It's like it's like milk when people toast. Yeah, milk toast. It's like when people see McPirate and they're like McPirate. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm pretty sure that's just Doctor Milk Toast. Yep, that's probably right. So let's give that one more shot. What? Uh, but if you want, it can be a Doctor Milk Toast. Because there's a Q-U-E acting as a K. That's very French. You think looking. I'm going to choose to do a French accent? I was sort of hoping. Absolutely not. What dreadful things can happen when a Dr. Milk Toast gets that gleam in his eye? I got to the White Heart late that evening, and when I arrived, everyone was crowded in the corner under the dartboard. That's a good pub right there. Yeah. Everyone hanging out at the the White Heart. It's a good pub name. It's good. It's the White Deer. Yeah. The White uh, Stag, you know. But the White Heart. So everyone's under the dartboard. All except Drew, that is. He had not deserted his post, but was sitting behind the bar reading the collected T.S. Eliot. Holy shit. Okay, what? so we've got a pub called The White Heart where everyone hangs out at the dartboard and the bartender reads T.S. Eliot. This is the right bar. Fucking hell. This is, this is a bar. This is a bar I would absolutely hang out at. He broke off from the confidential clerk long enough to hand me a beer and to tell me what was going on. Eric's brought in some kind of games machine. Apparently he's Irish, Scottish, nondescript. It's beaten everybody so far. Sam's trying his luck with it now. At that moment, a roar of laughter announced that Sam had been no luckier than the rest, and I pushed my way through the crowd to see what was happening. On the table lay a flat metal box the size of a checkerboard and divided into squares in a similar way. At the corner of each square was a two-way switch and a little neon lamp. The whole affair was plugged into the light socket, thus plunging the dartboard into darkness. And Eric Rogers was looking round for a new victim. This is a chess machine. It's like a chess machine, like chess uh, uh, video game kind of situation. What does this thing do, I asked. It's a modification of knots and crosses, what the Americans call tic-tac-toe. Shannon showed it to me when I was over at Bell Labs. What you have to do is to complete a path from one side of the board to the other, call it north to south, by turning on these switches. Imagine the thing forms a grid of streets, if you like, and these neons are the traffic lights. You and the machine take turns making moves. The machine tries to block your path by building one of its own in the east-west direction. The little neons light up and tell you which way it wants to make a move. Neither track needs to be a straight line. You can zigzag as much as you like. All that matters is that the path must be continuous, and the one who gets across the board first wins. So it's like tic-tac-toe meets chess meets... Uh, Chinese checkers a little bit. Meets... Uh, um, uh, what's the train game that I li- that everyone likes? Uh, Ticket to Ride. Ticket to Ride. Yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah, because you've got to... Because you're, you're, you're trying to connect the longest train. you're playing train. against someone else, but if they block you off, you're fucked. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right, all right. Meaning the machine, I suppose? Well, it's never been beaten yet. Can't you force a draw by blocking the machine's path so at least you don't lose? Well, that's what we're trying. Like to have a go? 
Two minutes later, I joined the other unsuccessful contestants. The machine had dodged all my barriers and established its own track from east to west. I wasn't convinced that it was unbeatable, but the game was clearly a good deal more complicated than it looked. Eric glanced around his audience when I had retired. No one else seemed in a hurry to move forward. Okay, this is already giving me strong War Games vibes. Do you yeah. know the movie War Games? I, I know the premise. I have yeah. not seen it, okay. but I, I know the premise, yeah. Dear listener, when this episode is over, go ahead and go watch War Games. It's a great movie. <laughs> I guess great I should movie. too. Huh, he said. The very man. What about you, Purvis? <laughs> oh, pervy Purvis. Pervy Purvis. Oh, no. What about you, Purvis? You've not had a shot yet. Harry Purvis was standing. <laughs> I would change my name immediately. Yeah. There is no way. Purvis. There is no way in hell I would go through life with a name like Harry, Harry Purvis. Purvis. See, this is when I'm like, they meant to give him that name. He is supposed to sound like a hairy penis. Like, oh uh, no! Like he's like Quagmire. This is a guy's like Quagmire. He's like, I'm Harry Purvis. How you doing? Oh, yeah. Like <laughs> it sounds like one of um, Jack's fake names in Will and Grace. Yeah, like when he's like hitting on someone at the bar, when, like, or, or or when uh, like he would go to donate sperm and he would give yeah. fake names yeah. to. Harry Purvis. Harry Purvis. No, dude. Like, exactly. Yeah, this guy is, like, he. this man has had a rough life. <laughs> he hey, kept that name. Hey, Harold, go change your name. It costs, like, 20 bucks. Yeah. Even even just, Joe Purvis would be better than Harry yeah, Purvis. Anything, just go by Harold, yeah. Like, or uh, Hank. Hank. Hank Purvis. Hank Purvis is a little close to Yank. Yeah, but still, it's better than Harry Purvis. <laughs> All right, Harry, let's do this. <clears throat> Harry Purvis was standing in the back of the crowd with a far-off look in his eye. It's because he has to, like, dissociate every day of his life to, like, make it through the days. It's almost <laughs> as bad as dick butt kiss. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he jolted back to Earth as Eric addressed him, but didn't answer the question directly. Fascinating things, these electronic computers, he mused, because I'm not going to yep. make him full-on quagmire, but he's going to have nerd voice. Yep. He mused. I suppose I shouldn't tell you this, but your gadget reminds me of what happened to Project Clausewitz. A curious story. And one very expensive to the American taxpayer. Is that something to do with Santa Claus? I don't know. Project Clausewitz? Yeah. <laughs> it's like Santa Jewish. It's Jewish Santa Claus. <laughs> Clausewitz. I love it. Perfect. Look, said John Wyndham anxiously, before you start, you should be a good sport and, and let us get our glasses filled. Draw! Amen. <laughs> yeah, he's like, if we're going to do this all night, we all need another round of drinks. The important matter having been attended to, we gathered round Harry. Only Charlie Willis still remained with the machine, hopefully trying his luck. As you all know, began Harry, science with a capital S is a big thing in the military world these days. The weapons side, rockets, atom bombs, and so on, is only part of it, though that's all the public knows about. Much more fascinating, in my opinion, is the operational research angle. You might say that's concerned with brains rather than brute force. 
I once heard it defined as how to win wars without actually fighting. And that's not a bad description. Um, I've given this guy the correct voice. Absolutely. Uh, so another little side note that I did not, um, that, that I didn't write down in, in the fun facts or in the literary foreplay. Yeah. Um, so radar specialist with the RAF, yeah. that was his position. Yeah. He, um, basically his job, he was working as a scientist and inventor with the group of people who were um, uh, creating and furthering the use of radar technology in warfare. That makes so sense. This is it's him. exactly what he's well, yeah. talking about. Oh, yeah. And his, uh, I believe his... One uh, non-science fiction novel was a semi-autobiographical, fictitious um, novelization of his time in that position where he talked about the development of radar in the RAF. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, he's using what he knows. Yep. And, and this, is this is very accurate to the way wars are fought now. Oh, yeah. We were just talking about yep. the other day how, like, Afghanistan was so much less... Saw so much less death than Vietnam because Vietnam was on the ground and Afghanistan, most of it was done via missiles. With and drones and missiles drones. and stuff. And so the the, the sort of the blunt casualties. force, the blunt force trauma of just soldiers dying in mass yeah. numbers. Yeah, it yeah. didn't happen. Anyway, war sucks. All right. Moving right along. Moving right along. Now, you all know about the big electronic computers that cropped up like mushrooms in the 1950s. Most of them were built to deal with mathematical problems. And when you think about it, you'll realize that war itself is a mathematical problem. It's a very complicated one that humans' brains can't handle it. There are far too many variables. Even the greatest strategists cannot see the picture as a whole. The Hitlers and Napoleons always make a mistake in the end. Thank God. Yeah, thank fucking God. This is why computers scare me too, though. Yep. Because if Hitler had a computer... Yeah. Uh, but a machine? That would be a different matter. A number of bright people realized this at the end of the war. The techniques that have been worked out in the building of... E-N-I-A-C? Enic? Enac? It's uh, gotta be a... It's gotta Eniac. be a... Eniac? Yeah, let's call it Eniac. That sounds right. Eniac? Eniac sounds great. Eniac, yeah. The techniques that have been worked out in the building of Eniac and the other big computers could revolutionize strategy. Hence, Project Clausewitz. Don't ask me how I got to know about it or press me for too many details. All that matters is that a good many megabucks worth of electronic equipment and some of the best scientific brains in the United States went into a certain cavern into the Kentucky Hills. Oh, it's a bourbon computer. And it's and they're all drinking whiskey. It's a bourbon computer that plays a banjo. Uh, yeah, I mean this is it. This is it. We see we yep. we're we're drinking whiskey for a reason. They're still there, but things haven't turned out exactly as they expected. Too much bourbon and banjo. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, and inbreeding. They all <laughs> fell in love with their sisters. Oh no. 
No, I, I don't know. The one great failing in science. No, the one great failing in Kentucky? I don't <laughs> What is the opposite of science? Incest. <laughs> I mean, literally, we have, we have facts to <laughs> prove that that is bad and people still do it. So, yes, that is the opposite of science. <laughs> What's the opposite of science, my cousin? <laughs> Your mom. <laughs> now. I don't know what experience you have of high-ranking military officers, but there's one type you've come across in fiction. That's the pompous conservative stick-in-the-mud careerist who got to the top by sheer pressure from beneath. <laughs> Sometimes that's all it takes. Sometimes you just need some pressure from the bottom to get to the top. <laughs> if, if you are secure enough to handle it, Get some pressure from beneath, and it'll get you on top. <laughs> or maybe you get on top to get it from beneath. I don't know. Like, whatever positions you prefer. <laughs> there are a lot of different positions that would make that work. Yep, absolutely. All right. So, so. And it sounds like Arthur C. Clarke experimented with most of them. Some who's got to the top by Jesus sheer pressure Christ. from beneath. Who does everything by the rules and regulations and regards civilians as... Well, at the best, unfriendly neutrals. I'll let you into a secret. He actually exists. <clears throat> he's not very common nowadays, but he's still around, and sometimes it's not possible to find a safe job for him. When that happens, he's worth his weight in plutonium on the other side. Uh, such a character, it seems, was General Smith. <laughs> Talk about general. His last name is Smith. It's yep. like random guy general Smith. General Smith. <laughs> like Agent Smith. In In The Matrix. Oh yeah. Agent Smith. Mr. Anderson. Mr. Anderson. He's Agent Smith or sorry, General Smith in my head now. That's okay, perfect. It seems it was General Smith. No. Of course not. That wasn't his real name. <laughs> Ooh, he's giving him an alias. His father was a senator, and although lots of people in the Pentagon have tried hard enough, the old man's influence has prevented the general from being put in charge of something harmless, like the coast defense of Wyoming. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go join the Wyoming Coast Guard. Yeah! <laughs> Instead, by miraculous misfortune, he had been made the officer responsible for Project Clausewitz. Ho, 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 ho bitches. <laughs> of course, he was only concerned with the administrative, not the scientific aspects of the work. All might have been well had the general been content to let the scientists get on with their work while he concentrated on saluting smartness, the coefficient of reflection on barrack floors, and similar matters of military importance. Unfortunately, he didn't. Uh, of course not. Shocking. <laughs> Some idiot gets hired as the manager and comes in and doesn't know fuck about what's going on and is like, I'm in charge now, man. Let's do this. Which will now be his if voice if speaks. I ever get to speak. Yes. <laughs> the general had led a sheltered existence. 
he had, if I may borrow from Wilde, everybody else does, been a man of peace except in his domestic life. Oh, Jesus Christ. So he just quoted Oscar Wilde, said everybody else does it, and apparently this guy um, lives a very quiet life except, except that his, he beats, his, beats wife. his wife. Like, that's what I just heard. Yep. Also, good Wilde poll. Yeah, like, that's great. He had never met scientists before, and the shock was considerable. <laughs> So he's also in tool bag. He yeah. wasn't used to hanging out with smart folks. Yeah. So perhaps it is not fair to blame him for everything that happened. Yes, it yes, is. It is. <laughs> How kind of you, Purvis, but uh, you're wrong. It was a considerable time before he realized the aims and objects of Project Clausewitz. Ho, ho, ho. And when he did, he was quite disturbed. This may have made him feel even less friendly towards his scientific staff. Oh, he's sad at his scientific staff. <laughs> That's why he has domestic problems. Hate an unfriendly staff. Oh, that's too bad. That's too bad. It's always better when the staff cooperates. Yeah, you gotta, like, be friendly with your staff. <laughs> Literally. That would make workplaces all the better if everyone was just friendly with their staff. Mm-hmm. But not at work. Not at work. No, don't, not like friend, not like overtly friendly, just kind. Be kind to your staff and it'll make you kinder to others. Take care of your own staff. Before you criticize someone else's staff, kindly look to your own. There you go. I think that's what Jesus said. That's what <laughs> okay, so <laughs> he's, he's being less friendly to his scientific staff. Even less friendly towards his scientific staff, for despite anything I may have said, the general was not entirely a fool. He was intelligent enough to understand that if the project succeeded, there might be more ex-generals around than even the combined boards of management of American industry could comfortably absorb. Oh, and then everybody will just be doing white Christmas left and right. <laughs> And I knew the general when he stops being a general. What do you do with a general who's retired? <laughs> that was my uh, my Bob Hope. <laughs> it was good. Thanks. It's our favorite Christmas movie. Goodography, too. Yeah, I was, I was dancing, yeah. <laughs> but let's leave the general for a minute and have a look at the scientists. There were about 50 of them, as well as a couple of hundred technicians. They'd all been carefully screened by the FBI, so probably not more than one or two were active members of the Communist Party. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Red Scare is funny. I, I, don't, I, don't know, I don't know who that was intended to be a dig at. Yeah. Communists? The or, FBI. Or the FBI or... People who are afraid of communists. People who are afraid of communists. People who are afraid of the FBI. Like, I don't know who yeah. that was supposed to be a dig at, but it was well written, yep. whatever it was. Very good. I'm sure it was more clear 60 years ago. In the 50s. <laughs> Though there was a lot of talk of sabotage later, for once in a while, the comrades were completely innocent. Besides, what happened certainly wasn't sabotage in any generally accepted meaning of the word. 
The man who had really designed the computer was a quiet little mathematical genius who had been swept out of college into the Kentucky hills and the world of security and priorities before he'd really realized what had happened. He wasn't called Dr. Milktoast, but he should have been. And that's what I'll christen him. Okay. All right, there it is. So now we have Dr. Milktoast. Dr. Milktoast is in the house. <laughs> Poor Dr. Milktoast. He was like, I just wanted to go to college. And they threw me in this mountain with all these incestual weirdos. <laughs> I was just doing math, and then there was banjo music, and I got drunk. Do, 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 do. And then I blew up the world, apparently, or something. And then I brought Santa Claus yeah. into existence. Or I blew up Santa Claus. Oh, God. I'm still not really sure what's we going on. We don't know on. what's going to happen, but yeah. To complete our cast of characters, I'd better say something about Carl. <laughs> Fucking Carl. Marks? Carl? <laughs> yes, Carl. I have been waiting to hear all about Carl. <laughs> I'd better say something about Carl. At this stage in the business, Carl was only half-built. Carl's the computer. Yes. I was like, wait, is this like a Rocky Horror situation? What's going on? Are they, are they making a man? In I just seven days. days. Uh, uh, milk uh, toast will make you a man. <laughs> yeah? And now, if Dr. Milk Toast... Toast talks. He has to be Tim Curry. Oh shit! Well, I'm fucked. I hope Doctor Milk just never talks. <laughs> Holy shit! I'll have to like deep dive into my brain there. All right, cool. All right, Carl, you're only half built. Like all big computers, most of him consisted of vast banks of memory units. <laughs> vast banks of units. <laughs> D- diving deep there. Diving deep. Most of him consisted of vast banks of memory units, which could receive and store information until it was needed. The creative part of Carl's brain, uh, the analyzers and integrators, took this information and operated on it to produce answers to the questions he was asked. Given all the relevant facts, Carl would produce the right answers. The problem, of course, was to see that Carl did have all the facts. He couldn't be expected to get the right results from an accurate or insufficient information. This is so just here we a prequel. Again. This is just a prequel to the last question. Yeah. This is a prequel yeah. to the Isaac Asimov story I read a couple of weeks it's ago. Here's Siri, everybody. Like the invention um, of Carl. It was Dr. Milktoast's responsibility to design Carl's brain. Yes, I know that's a crudely athrom fucking shit. Anthropomorphic. There it is. Anthropomorphic, yep. yes. Yes, I know that's a crudely anthropomorphic way of looking at it, but no one can deny that these big computers have personalities. It's hard to put it more accurately without getting technical, so I'll simply say that Little Milk Toast had to create the extremely complex circuits that enabled Carl to blink in the way he was supposed to. So, here are our three protagonists. General Smith, pining for the days of Custer. Dr. Milk Toast, lost in the fascinating scientific... Dr. Milk... 
Dr. Milktoast, lost in the fascinating scientific intrinsicacies. Nope. In, 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 Do you want help? In, intricacies. There we go. <laughs> Dr. Milktoast, lost in the fascinating scientific Damn it. I keep wanting to say idiosyncrasies. That's not what it is. It's, it's No, though that word probably works. Dr. Milktoast lost in the fascinating scientific intricacies. <laughs> the fascinating scientific intricacies of his job. <laughs> intricacies. There it is, ladies and gentlemen. The one that broke Heather. And Carl. 50 tons of electronic gear, yet not... <laughs> I'm just going to do this whole set and this whole paragraph again for, right. your, for your help. So, here are our three protagonists. General Smith, pining for the days of Custer. Mm. Dr. Milktoast, lost in the fascinating scientific intricacies of his job. And Carl... 50 tons of electronic gear, not yet animated by the currents that would soon be coursing through him. All right, so we got three people or right. three things that are about to destroy something. Now, now we know who our characters are. Yeah. Soon, but not soon enough for General Smith. Let's not be too hard on the general. Someone had probably put the pressure on him when it became obvious that the project was falling behind schedule. He called Dr. Milktoast into his office. Oh, no. The interview lasted more than 30 minutes, and the doctor said less than 30 words. Most of the time, the general was making pointed remarks about production times, deadlines, and bottlenecks. He seemed to be under the impression that building Carl differed in no important particular from the assembly of the current model Ford. It was just a question of putting the bits together. Dr. Milktoast was not the sort of man to explain the error, even if the general had given him the opportunity. He left, smarting under a considerable sense of injustice. So now you also have a disgruntled, brilliant genius who... Working for the military. Working for this asshole guy who has no idea what he's talking about. This will go very well, I'm sure. A week later, it was obvious that the creation of Carl was falling still further behind schedule. Milk Toast was doing his best, and there was no one who could do better. Problems of a complexity totally beyond the general's comprehension had to be met and mastered. They were mastered, but it took time, and time was in short supply. At his first interview, the general had tried to be as nice as he could and had succeeded in being merely rude. <laughs> this time, he tried to be rude, with results that I leave to your imagination. <laughs> he practically insinuated that Milk Toast and his colleagues, by falling behind their deadline, were guilty of un-American inactivity. Wow. So this is very communist bullshit. Like, You're so lazy, you may as well be communists. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you're, you're, you're moving so slow that you might as well be... French. Nazis. I don't... <laughs> French. <laughs> Why the French? The French are our friends. <laughs> well, this is just post-World War II. Yeah. 
American sentiment was largely running, we just saved their asses. Well, yes, but they are next door to the Nazis. <laughs> I'm just oh, saying. I'm, saying. Okay. I'm being in character. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm not saying I think the French are lazy. I'm saying General Smith thinks the French are lazy. General Smith sounds a little lazy, honestly. <laughs> From this moment onwards, two things started to happen. Relations between the army and the scientists grew steadily worse, and Dr. Milto and Dr. Milktoast, for the first time, began to give serious thought to the wider implications of his work. This is going yeah. to be a super niche comment, but for anyone, uh, hey Doug, if you're listening, <laughs> I, this is probably mostly just for you. Um, this right here is the premise of every episode of Stargate. Well, it's it's the military against the scientists, yeah. and one scientist in particular is Rosa starting conscious. is starting to deal with the 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 social implications and ramifications of what they're doing. I mean, is every it, single episode of Stargate. I didn't see it, and but Star isn't Trek. that isn't that what Oppenheimer's about? I don't know. I haven't seen it. I think that's because he built the the first like nuclear bomb, right? Like. And then yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know what the movie yeah. focuses on, I, though. Yes, but like I'm, I know that's part of it. I haven't seen it, but yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. He had always been too busy, too engaged upon the immediate problems of his task to consider his social responsibilities. He was still too busy now, but that didn't stop him pausing for reflection. Here I am, he told himself. One of the best pure mathematicians in the world. <laughs> Why does he sound like he's special? <laughs> oh, no. I'm a mathematician. Doesn't mean I know how to say the word. <laughs> he's not good at speaking. It's, it's my job. I don't know how. I don't have to know how to spell it. It's true. I have a feeling he's from Kentucky, so I'm just giving him a southern accent. Here I am, he told himself. One of the best pure mathematicians in the world. And what am I doing? What's happened to my thesis on Dithantine, Diophantine, Diophantine? <laughs> Some mathematical theory. <laughs> in mathematics, a Diophantine equation is an equation, typically a polynomial equation in two or more unknowns with integer coefficients such that the only solutions of interest are the integer ones. Cool. How do I say it again? Oh, it's like coding. It's coding. I don't right? know, but it, it makes a triangle. Cool. <laughs> I have a feeling it has something to do with coding because it's computer. So yeah. Um, I said Diophantine equation. Diophantine equation. Yeah. But yeah, the graph is a, that that graph was a triangle. Yes, I, there was a lovely triangle there. So yay math. What's happened to my thesis on Diophantine equations? When am I going to have another smack at the prime number theorem? In short. When am I going to do some real work again? He could have resigned, but that didn't occur to him. In any case, far down beneath that mild and dividend exterior was a stubborn streak. Dr. Milktoast continued to work, even more energetically than before. 
The construction of Carl proceeded slowly but steadily. The final connections of his myriad celled brain were soldered. The thousands of circuits were checked and tested by the mechanics. And one circuit, indistinguishably interwoven among its multitude of companions, leading to a set of memory cells apparently identical with all the others, was tested by Dr. Milktoast alone. For no one else knew that it existed. Oh, Uh-oh. no. He gave it a fucking, like, exit code. He gave it a prime directive <laughs> yeah, or, or, or a like backdoor. Or- fun. Oh, no. The great day came. To Kentucky, by devious routes, came very important personages. A whole constellation of multi-star generals arrived from the Pentagon. Even the Navy had been invited. <laughs> Not the even, Navy. Even those fuckers from the Navy. Which is funny because we're the- coming to. Kentucky. Yeah, they're like where they don't usually hang out. They're like we don't have any boats here. Uh, <laughs> the Navy was at the Betsy Ross house today. The like Navy band was playing for Indigenous Peoples Day, which was nice. they were very good. At least we have water access. Yeah, here. I mean it used to be one of the largest port cities in the mm-hmm. world, so that makes sense. Proudly, General Smith led the visitors from cavern to cavern, from memory banks to selector networks to matrix analyzers to input tables, and finally to the rows of electric typewriters on which Carl would print the results of his deliberations. The general knew his way around quite well. At least, he got most of the names right. He even managed to give the impression to those who knew no better that he was largely responsible for Carl. (laughs) Of Uh, course course. he did. (laughs) What a fucking tool. Now, said the general. No, oh, wait, oh, wait. Now he's like, now, said the general cheerfully, let's give him some work to do. Anyone like to set him a few sums? At the word sums, the mathematicians winced, but the general was unaware of his faux pas. The assembled brass thought for a while, then someone said daringly, What's nine multiplied by itself twenty times? (laughs) One of the technicians, with an audible sniff, punched a few keys. There was a rattle of gunfire from an electric typewriter, and before anyone could blink twice, the answer had appeared. All twenty digits of it. I looked it up since, for anyone who wants to know what it is. One two one five seven six six five four five nine zero five six nine two eight eight zero one. My uh, number dyslexia did very good there. Yeah. <laughs> I focused very hard. Uh, but let's get back to Harry and his tail. <laughs> oh, that's like the voice of the author. That's the author said Yeah, that, it's yeah. like, I looked it up, so if anyone wants to know it, it's, and there's the number. But let's get back to Harry and his tail. <laughs> yeah. And Harry's cranky, as are all the scientists, because they're treating this multi-trillion dollar computer like, like a, a calculator. calculator. Yeah. They're like, seriously? That's what you're asking? Not like really? what is nine the- to the power of twenty? Yeah. It's like fuckers, come on. Um, can we talk there- about like what what does there existence are, mean? There like- are six people in this room who can do that in their head right now. Yeah. What the hell's your problem? Yeah. For the next fifteen minutes, Carl was bombarded with similar trivialities. 
The visitors were impressed, though there was no reason to suppose that they'd have spotted it if all the answers had been completely wrong. <laughs> the general gave a modest cough. Simple arithmetic was as far as he could go, and Carl had barely begun to warm up. I'll now hand you over, he said, to Captain Winkler. Hey. Yeah. Hey, guys. Yeah. I'll now hand you over to the Fonz. The Fonz is here, and it's the 50s, so it's perfect timing. Captain Winkler was an intense young Harvard graduate whom the general distrusted, rightly suspecting him to be more a scientist than a military man. But he was the only officer who really understood what Carl was supposed to do, or could even explain exactly how he set about doing it. He looked. The general thought grumpily, like a damned schoolmaster, as he started to lecture the visitors. The tactical problem that had been set up was a complicated one, but the answer was already known to everybody except Carl. It was a battle that had been fought and finished almost a century before, and when Captain Winkler concluded his introduction, a general from Boston whispered to his a general from Boston whispered to his aide, "I'll bet some damn southerner has fixed it so that Lee wins this time." You know what? He's not wrong. <laughs> Everyone had to admit, however, that the problem was an excellent way of testing Carl's capabilities. The punched tapes disappeared into the captious memory units. Patterns of lights flickered and flashed across the registers. Mysterious things happened in all directions. This problem, said Captain Winkler primarily, will take about five minutes to evaluate. As if it is deliberate contradiction, one of the typewriters promptly started to chatter. A strip of paper shot out of the feed, and Captain Winkler, looking rather puzzled at Carl's unexpected alacrity, read the message. His lower jaw immediately dropped six inches, and he stood staring at the paper as if unable to believe his eyes. What, what is it, man? barked the general. Captain Winkler swallowed hard, but appeared to have lost the power of speech. With a snort of impatience, the general snatched the paper from him. Then it was his turn to stand paralyzed. But unlike his subordinate, he also turned a most beautiful red. <laughs> For a moment, he looked like some tropical fish strangling out of water. <laughs> then, not without a slight scuffle... The enigmatic message was captured by the five-star general who outranked everybody in the room. His reaction was totally different. He promptly doubled up with laughter. The minor officers were left in a state of infuriating suspense for quite ten minutes, but finally the news filtered down through colonels to captains to lieutenants, until at last there wasn't a G.I. in the establishment who did not know the wonderful news. Carl had told General Smith that he was a pompous baboon. <laughs> that was all. <laughs> 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 oh, 
All I right. love it. I love it. All right. It's a computer with an attitude. Again, much like the last question. Well, yeah, Siri gives you attitude when you ask her something she doesn't want to answer. Even though everybody agreed with Carl, <laughs> the matter could hardly be allowed to rest there. Something obviously had gone wrong. Something or someone had diverted Carl's attention from the Battle of Gettysburg. Where, roared General Smith, finally recovering his voice, is Dr. Milktoast? He was no longer present. He had slipped quietly out of the room, having witnessed his great moment. Retribution would come later, of course, but it was worth it. The frantic technicians cleared the circuits and started running tests. They gave Carl an elaborate series of multiplications and divisions to perform, the computer's equivalent of the quick brown fox jumps over the lazy dog. Everything seemed to be functioning perfectly. So they put in a very simple tactical problem, which a Lieutenant J.G. could solve in his sleep. Said Carl, Go jump in a lake, General. <laughs> he doesn't let it do military things. The subroutine that he added in made it a pacifist computer. Yeah. Hence the title. Yeah. Holy balls, that's awesome. He won't give any military details. Yeah. Because he doesn't want the social rep like the yep. repercussions of what that could mean. A strange game. The only winning move is not to play. Yes. Kind of like the game that... Like war games. Well, the game they're playing before this starts. Yep. Like, you can't win. You can't beat the computer. It was then that General Smith realized that he was confronted with something outside the scope of standard operating procedure. He was faced with mechanical mutiny, no less. It took several hours of tests to discover exactly what had happened. Somewhere tucked away in Carl's capacious memory units was a superb collection of insults, lovingly assembled by Dr. Milktoast. He had punched on tape or recorded in patterns of electrical impulses everything he would like to have said to the general himself. But that was not all he had done. That would have been too easy, not worthy of his genius. No, he had also installed what could only be called a sensor circuit. He had given Carl the power of discrimination. Before solving it, Carl examined every problem fed to him. If it was concerned with pure mathematics, he cooperated and dealt with it properly. But if it was a military problem, out came one of the insults. <laughs> After 20 times, he had not repeated himself once. Yes. And the WACs had already had to be sent out of the room. Oh. Do you know what the WACs are? No. WAC is the Women's Army Corps. Oh, Jesus Christ. Oh, the women can't handle this vulgarity. They're all thinking the same this, fucking this, thing. This mechanical vulgarity. These women are like, yep, they're all twat knockers and we should be above them. It must be confessed that after a while, the technicians were almost as interested in discovering what indignity Carl would next heap upon General Smith as they were in finding the fault in the circuits. <laughs> he had begun with mere insults and surprising geological surmises, but had... Genealogical. genealogical. Yes. <laughs> you rockhead! <laughs> you, you quartz of a bitch! <laughs> Just start throwing random, like... Geologically? <laughs> it's like, 
You, uh, you limestone motherfucker. <laughs> You're like raw granite. Dense and with no sparkle. <laughs> Dense and boring. <laughs> Dense and dull. Dense and dull. There Dense it is. And dull. You're like there raw granite. Dense, Dense and dull. dull. <laughs> but that would that's, be geological That would be surmises. geologic surmisers, but we, we're going to go back and say something else. He had begun with mere insults and surprising genealogical surmises, but had swiftly passed on to detailed instruction, the mildest of which would have been highly prejudicial to the general's dignity, while the more imaginative would have seriously imperiled his physical integrity. Holy shit. Wow. So he started with yo mama jokes yeah, and, and, and he, moved on to why don't you bend over and, and stick your head up your own ass. Yeah, yeah. He, it started out as like simple enough like kids on a playground. Like what was the first one? It was like, you're a dummy. Like, and now it's Pompous like. Pompous baboon. Yeah, yeah. Now it's like, go fish yourself in the ass, you butt and fucker. Like, <laughs> like what the fuck? Damn. And the more they're listening to this, the longer this guy's, like, getting the fuck out of, out of um, Dodge. Yeah. He's like, bye. The fact that all these messages, as they emerged from the typewriters, were immediately classified top secret was small consolation to the recipient. <laughs> now they're in a box forever at the FBI. He knew with a glum certainty that this would be the worst-kept secret of the Cold War, and that it was time he looked round a civilian occupation. Yeah. <laughs> and there, gentlemen, concluded Purvis, the situation remains. The engineers are still trying to unravel the circuits that Dr. Miltoast and Milk Toast installed, and no doubt it's only a matter of time before they succeed. But meanwhile, Carl remains an unyielding pacifist. He's perfectly happy playing with the theory of numbers, computing tables of powers, and handling arithmet arithmetical. arithmetical and handling arithmetical problems generally. Do you remember the famous toast, Here's to pure mathematics. May it never be of any use to anybody? Carl would have seconded that. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as anyone attempts to slip a fast one across him, he goes on strike. And because he's got such a wonderful memory, he can't be fooled. He has half the great battles of the world stored up in his circuits and can recognize at once any variation on them. Though attempts were made to disguise tactical exercises as problems in mathematics, he could spot the subterfuge right away. And out would come another Dieu for the general. Dieu. Billet Dieu, yeah. Billet Dieu. See, you got French in the end, motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're not there yet, but we got, we got, I'm guessing another, like, insult, another fuck you, or another. No. Billet Dieu, a love letter. <laughs> so. So, yes. A pacifist way of saying fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> a little sarcasm in there. As for Dr. Milktoast, no one could do much about him because he promptly had a nervous breakdown. It was suspiciously well-timed, but he could certainly claim to have earned it. 
When last heard, he was teaching matrix algebra at a theological college in Denver. Oh, with a bunch of fucking hippies in the mountains? Yes. He's just smoking a shit ton of weed in the mountains. He swears he's forgotten everything that ever happened while he was working on Carl. Maybe he was even telling the truth. Then there was a sudden shout from the back of the room. I've won, cried Charles Willis. Come and see. We all crowded around the dartboard. It seemed true enough. Charlie had established a zigzag but continuous track from one side of the checkerboard to the other, despite the obstacles the machine had tried to put in his way. Show us how you did it, said Eric Rogers. Charlie looked embarrassed. I forgot, he said. I didn't make a note of all the moves. A sarcastic voice broke in from the background. But I did, said John Christopher. You were cheating. You made two moves at once. (laughs) Oh, shit. He figured out how to cheat the game. Yep. After that, I'm sorry to say there was some disorder, and Drew had to threaten violence before peace was restored. Oh, he had to put down his T.S. Eliot and fucking, like, be like... Apparently the bartender's not a pacifist. Yeah, he's like, get the fuck out of my bar, I don't put up with this bullshit. I remember his voice. (laughs) I don't know who really won the squabble, and I don't think it matters. For I'm inclined to agree with what Purvis remarked as he picked up the robot checkerboard and examined its wiring. You see, he said, this little gadget is only a simple-minded cousin of Carl's, and look what it's done already. All these machines are beginning to make us look like fools. Before long, they'll start to obey us without any milk toast interfering with their circuits, and then they'll start ordering us about. They are logical, after all. He sighed. When that happens, there won't be a thing we can do about it. We'll just have to say to the dinosaurs, move over a bit, here comes Homo Sape, and the vacuum tube shall inherit the Earth. There was no time for further pessimistic philosophy, for the door opened and the police constable Wilkins stuck in his head. Where's the owner of CGC 571? He asked testily. Oh, it's you, Mr. Purvis. Your rear light's out. Harry looked at me sadly, then shrugged his shoulders in resignation. You see, he said, it started already. And he went out into the night. The end. Holy cool. Yeah. Uh, so now we're also predicting uh, the Matrix and Terminator in terms of um, uh, the machines sort of taking gaining over. sentience and taking over. Well, which makes me very nervous now that we have fucking self-driving cars on the streets. <laughs> yeah. I'm not into that. I'm never going to be okay with that. Yeah, I uh, I saw a post. I don't remember who shared it, but it was like something about cars backed up together. No, 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 no. It was something about it was um, someone talking about a conversation that uh, a friend of theirs had with her kids, and she was like, she was teaching the older one how to drive, yeah. and the the younger one is getting close to teaching to drive. They're like fifteen and thirteen, fifteen, yeah. twelve, something like that, teaching the older one how to drive, and 
from the the back seat, the the younger one was like, "Mom, I don't know why you're bothering to try to teach us how to drive. We're not gonna have to." Mm-mm-mm-mm. I fucking hate that. Mm-mm. Hell no. No, I saw a video in like I don't. I think it might have been in England or something, but it was like twenty Teslas, like all stuck at a three way stop. Because they all kept trying to go, but like, then the one would move and the other one would stop and the other one would move. And then, so they just all got back the fuck up. Yeah. And I'm like, that's the problem. Like, you need some, you need a, you need a human brain to decide. You need someone who can override. Yeah. 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 So that scares the shit out of me. Anyway. Well, that was fun. That was a good story. Yep, very like very similar to the the last question in like not in style at all. No, but, but in like, in concept yeah. of of computers. Yeah. Um an examination of where computers are going. Yeah. 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 Uh cool. Yeah. I uh, I enjoyed that one. Did too. What did you think about that one, dear campers? Did you have fun? Write in and let us know what you thought. Yeah. You can email us at 5050. Those are the digits, 5050. Uh, artsproduction at gmail.com or message us on any of the social media. Uh, Facebook, Instagram, et cetera, et cetera. Just look for Campfire Classics Podcast. And uh, yeah, shoot us a message. Let us know what you thought about that episode. Um, let us know what it is that you hang on to that you should really just go ahead and use. There's no need to protect it. And while you're at it, let us know what unnecessary objects you use to decorate your house. Like liquor <laughs> like bottles. Old bottles, yeah. Uh, when you write in to share all of this information and anything else you might just want to share, please use this week's secret passcode, which is pressure from beneath. Pressure from pressure. From beneath, yeah, from beneath, oh yeah. Uh-uh-uh-uh. Pressure from beneath. Okay, I'm done. Okay. Uh, anything else? No, that's it. Okay, cool. Um, I was actually kind of trying to figure out if there was a way I could just fade straight into the, the exit music while you were singing that, but <laughs> I really do need to hit our final tagline. So until next week, this has been Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. It's the terror of knowing what computers will do. We don't know, so we're tiny.